This morning, as Tim has read for us, we are in Acts chapter 17. We're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Acts, where we see these witnesses bearing witness to the gospel of the kingdom of the Christ, Jesus, about his gospel, about his person, his works, and the way of salvation. This morning, we have a pretty incredible story for us, as well as a comparison of two sets of people from two towns. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to uh, begin our time by simply retelling that story, making sure that we caught what took place, and then we'll zoom in a good bit to look at the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached, and then we'll look at the comparison that is made where it says that the Berean believers were more noble than the Thessalonians. So let's begin by looking at the story together. The story begins with Paul and Silas. As you're following along in your scripture, you can see that they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. And as they were making their way together, Paul and Silas, along with another companion, Timothy, we see him show up later on in the passage, it seems likely that they passed through those two cities because there likely wasn't a a synagogue there. At least that's our best guess as to why they simply passed through there and landed in Thessalonica because Apostle Paul, as he goes from town to town, is looking for a synagogue to serve as, as a host place and a launching point for gospel proclamation. That shouldn't surprise us. That seems to be the order of what the Lord has been doing in in all of redemption history. The gospel was to the Jews first. He proclaimed there in Thessalonica. And as that proclamation goes out into the synagogue, it then extends and we see its effect in the whole of the city. Now, what the gospel that he proclaims there, he proclaims in a clear and compelling way. And like I said in just a moment ago, we're going to come back to that in a minute. The passage says, if you're following along with me, as he's explaining and proving that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, it says in verse 4, some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Devout Greeks and leading women from the city are joining with the Jews who believed. And so we see the salvation going out not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. I think it's notable that it mentions these few leading women in the city who believed. We see a number of times in Acts and in the letters of Paul how women often served as patrons and hosts for the church. The 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 women often in these cities to which Paul is going, especially on return trips for future missionaries, we see them serving as as establishing a beachhead for the mission. We see next is out of jealousy, some of the Jewish leaders found wicked men and formed a mob. That's not the first time we've seen that in the scriptures. We've seen it a number of times along the way, but we specifically saw that approach at the arrest of Jesus. They formed a mob, right? And they made false accusations, and they were seeking to to create a sort of stir that catches the eye of the authorities. And that's what takes place in Thessalonica as well. They came to a house where Paul was staying, the house of Jason. They went in there, and they're going to drag everybody to the household, and they're severely disappointed, right? When they get to that house, they drag out everybody in the household, and it turns out it's just Jason. Paul and Silas and the others aren't there. So they think, well, I guess we better 
drag in who we've managed to find. And so they drag Jason off before the city authorities. Their accusation was that Paul and those who were with him, and Jason as a host for that behavior, were turning the world upside down. Now, consider that. It is true. That is what is happening, but not in the way that these accusers meant. If you look at what's happening in city after city, including Thessalonica, you see that it's actually the people of these towns that are causing riots, and they're gathering mobs, and they're accusing the disciples of of seeking to overthrow Caesar. We saw the accusation also with Jesus, didn't we? When Jesus was arrested, he's accused of overthrowing Caesar, proclaiming himself as another king. You see at the end of verses 8 and 9, they heard these things, they were disturbed, and they took money as security from Jason and the rest, and they let them go. They received money as security against any further disturbance. The authorities then let Jason Go. It seems to be because of how quickly Paul leaves town that part of the arrangement of that security exchange was that Paul would leave town. And so he does so. He leaves Thessalonica behind and he moves on to the next town, Berea. Now, Berea is very interesting because Luke, the author of Acts, calls the Bereans more noble than the Thessalonians. I think that's a fascinating statement. Look at verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness. They examined the scriptures and many of them believed. Fascinating to be called noble for those things. Many believed. Even there, it's not just the Jews in the synagogue who believed. We're told that it included Greek women and men of high standing. The gospel is making inroads into unexpected places as Paul and others are going with the gospel. You you remember how Jesus said to begin in Jerusalem, at the beginning of Acts, begin in Jerusalem and then go to Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It seems, though, that the, the Apostle Paul is following that same sort of model, that same sort of pattern as he's going from town to town. He goes to the Jewish synagogue, sort of the, the local Jerusalem in each town. And he goes there and he preaches and then he moves outward from that place. So as Paul is faithful to bring the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Greeks, The synagogue serves as a springboard for the first wave of ministry. Paul's faithful to that example that that Jesus has given to him, to that call to the apostles. But it seems that God is also doing something here. It seems that what God is doing in the midst of that faithfulness to bring the gospel to the Jews, that God is creating a network of persons of peace among the Gentiles in each of the cities to which the gospel is going. And that network of Gentiles would serve as hosts for a second wave of ministry that would come into the town. And that's important to note as we see the church becoming increasingly a Gentile community. God seems to be establishing a network of persons of peace among the Gentiles. Now the Jews came to this noble town of Berea. The Jews came in from Thessalonica. 
And they began to agitate the crowds there. They began to stir them up, and Paul had to move on. Now, he left behind Silas and Timothy to encourage the saints and continue in the ministry of the gospel. But Paul moves on to Athens, where we will pick up with him again next week as we see him preaching the gospel to the philosophers in Athens. The gospel. That's what we need to pay attention to this morning in the midst of this passage. It's a consistent thread that's winding through all of these missionary journeys, which we're now in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. The gospel remains the same. Look with me at Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. Follow along with me. Look at it with me. And Paul went in, that is, to the synagogue, as was his custom. This isn't the first time he's done this in these towns. And on three Sabbath days, he, look, look what he says. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, this dead and rising Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That's Paul's approach, was to go into these places, into these cities and into these synagogues and to preach the gospel by reasoning with them from the scriptures. Now I have to pause there and consider a warning and a rebuke for the church today. A warning for us and a rebuke for much of what is called the church today. So much of what passes for wisdom in the church today reverses that approach. A preacher or a leader or an author will begin with a good idea, what sounds quite nice and reasonable, an illustration, some kind of hook or a catchy concept, and then, having established his good idea will then make reference to some entirely out-of-context verse or story from the Bible that supports, it would seem, little more than what is just his good idea. thought of his own imagination. Friends, this is a rebuke of that sort of approach to not even teaching the Scriptures. The work of the church. The attention that we are to give is to, as a professor of mine and friend would say, is to privilege the words of the word. A preacher or or leader isn't to give, to privilege his own thoughts to things that he's collected along the way, good ideas or catchy concepts. This isn't reasoning from the scriptures. It's a human wisdom in disguise, trying to use the Bible to support our imagination. It's not preaching, and it's not sound teaching. It's what Colossians 2.8 is talking about when it gives this warning. Colossians 2.8, it's a good verse to write down in the margin of your Bible next to that little passage about explaining from the scriptures, reasoning from the scriptures. Colossians 2.8, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according 
to Christ. See that no one takes you captive. What is it that the apostle is reasoning with them about? What is he reasoning with them regarding the scriptures? What the scriptures teach? What is it? If you look at the passage, it tells us, it tells us that he's explaining and proving that it was necessary. Now, where is he getting that explanation? Where is he getting that proof? Well, he's reasoning from the scriptures, right? So he's explaining, proving, reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus, the Christ, had to suffer and arise from the dead. That's central to the message of the gospel, that the Apostle Paul is going from town to town teaching. This is what we see him reasoning from the scriptures. We see the cross and we see the resurrection. That if we're going to say that we've preached the gospel, at some point we need to have talked about the suffering and death of the Christ. And at some point we need to have talked about the resurrection of the Christ. Let us first say this. The passage says it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Consider that. Think about that for a moment. Let us first say that it was not necessary for Jesus to die. And you're like, wait a minute. You told us to examine the scriptures, and it seems to me that this scripture says it was necessary for the Christ to die. You're right. You're right. I need some explain myself. Let's be clear. Jesus did not have to save anyone. He was under no external compulsion. There was no cosmic design that enforced its will upon the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit that said it is necessary for the Father to send the Son, for the Spirit to equip the Son and to keep the Son, and for the Son to die or to rise. Jesus did not have to sacrifice himself in the place of sinners. God did not have to set his love, mercy, or grace on anyone. That's why it's called mercy. That's why it's called grace. Because the gospel was not out of necessity. The gospel was out of love. And so, Jesus the Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The father gave, gave, gifted, graced the son as the anointed savior and king, not out of necessity, but out of perfect and saving divine love. And the Christ as the savior, since the Lord's providence designed to save people, since that was providence, the Lord God's own will, it was therefore necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise. Friends, I make that note. It's important for us to see if we don't see that it it was not necessary, it was love. And because it was love, it was therefore necessary. We are not at the center of the universe. God did not have to save us. But he did, which puts God at the center of the universe, the greatest glory and good. He is the merciful and gracious one. Puts the Lord God and his will, his design at the center of salvation. So the argument that Paul is making here is that 
that Jesus is the saving, sacrificial, atoning Christ. And the expectation prevalent in the day among the Jews was for a triumphant military and national rescue. But what Jesus brought was both unexpected and far greater than anyone was looking for. Jesus brought rescue not only from earthly powers, but from the rightful judgment of God upon sinners. Jesus came not only to send the enemies far away, Jesus came to bring God himself near. Do you see that's better? If the enemies are far away, we are still alone. And you know who we're stuck with? This enemy. But the Lord comes near, and he deals not only with the enemies from without, but he deals with the enemy from within, and he saves, and he sanctifies, he forgives, and he grants eternal life. Just as we celebrated at Easter, a dead Christ is no victory. He is, the Lord has come, he's dwelt near us, he's worked righteousness in our place, he has died for us so that we can be forgiven of sin and made righteous. But that's not all that he did. He's not just the dead Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 through 19. And if the Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the Christ was to suffer in the place of sinners, it was also necessary for the Christ to rise in victory and to take up eternal life for all those he came to save. Friends, this is the core work of the Christ in his gospel. This is the good news to sinners like you and me, that we ourselves are enemies of the Christ, apart from his perfect work of redemption in his cross and resurrection. It was because Jesus came to save us from our greatest enemy, that is our own sin that condemns us before a holy God, that it was necessary for, according to the scriptures, the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead. And it says, saying this, in verse 3 there in the middle of the verse, and saying, this Jesus, this Jesus, and when he says this Jesus, he's saying, this, this one that I just proclaimed to you, this suffering and rising Jesus, that Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. What is the great, triumphant declaration of the gospel? That Jesus is that Christ. That Jesus is the Christ that we ought expect. Now, I've been saying this word a lot this morning. We've been talking about the Christ. Some of you have looked at your study notes in your Bible, and you maybe you don't even have study notes, but there's a, a just a little little asterisk next to the word Christ and most of our Bibles, and it says that the word Christ is also the word Messiah. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. The word Christ means Messiah, it's the same thing. But what if I asked you, what does that mean? Why would the Apostle Paul feel like he just proclaimed really good news when he said, Jesus is 
the Messiah. Could you explain? What does it mean? Why is this good news for the church that Jesus is Messiah? What is this good news for sinners that Jesus is Messiah? This is the central message of the Apostle Paul. Jesus is Messiah. This Jesus who suffered and rose is the Christ. We say it all the time, but do we know what it means? I could spend an entire message on this one point, but let me say just a a few things about what it means that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. The word Messiah is not just a a big title for a person, Christ. It's actually a descriptor. It means anointed one. An anointed person is installed to an official role, and his head is anointed with oil as a symbolic act that God has placed him in a role. Particularly in the Old Testament, there were two offices to which a person was anointed with oil, the office of the king and the office of the high priest. They were anointed persons. Therefore, they were messiahs. They were Christs. They were anointed ones to the role that they had to fulfill from the Lord. Throughout history, the Jewish people have looked for someone to come who is unlike the kings who came before and unlike the high priests who came before, who would come and fulfill the office of king. The king would be great, rescuing, earthly redeemer, greater than all those who came before. But they've also been looking for a high priest, an anointed one to come, a high priest who would reestablish the order of the worship of the people of God. Now, for those of you who were with us during our series in Hebrews, you can see why the argument that's made there is so important. The argument in Hebrews is that the anointed king and the anointed high priest are not two people. They're one person. Jesus is the king in the line of David, and he's the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He fulfills these two offices in one person. Jesus is the Messiah priest king. He stands in the place of the people like he did in suffering in our place. And he stands in victory for the people like he did in his resurrection life. And so because Jesus is our anointed high priest and our anointed king, it was necessary for him to suffer and to rise. That's the argument that the Apostle Paul is making when he says Jesus is the Christ. When we say Jesus is a Christ, it isn't a last name, and it's not simply an honorific title for Jesus. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he is our long-awaited priest king. Now, some of that may sound new to some of you. I would encourage you with this. Examine the scriptures. Go and examine the scriptures. Listen to the story. Watch in the scriptures how God is weaving a story that only Jesus is truly able to fulfill in perfection. And you too will see from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. This is the gospel that Paul preached in both Thessalonica and that he preached in Berea. 
We've seen how the Thessalonians reacted, right? They reacted by causing a ruckus while some believed even among those who were leading in the city. Many of the Jewish leaders rose up and they brought out a mob and sought to bring him before the magistrates in the city. But let's consider for a moment when the Apostle Paul moves on to Berea, how do they respond to the teaching of the gospel? And what we see is we see in the second part of our passage, beginning in verse 10, we see the nobility. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And what happened when they got there? Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Again, I just find that to be a fascinating statement. He could have said lots of different things there, but instead he he decides to call these Jews noble people. I love that word, nobility. Looked it up a little bit. I thought, let's, let's see what the dictionaries have to say about the word nobility. Virtue, goodness, honor, decency, integrity, magnanimity, generosity, selflessness, bravery. Bravery. These were brave people. When they heard the gospel, they were brave and opened up the scriptures and in honor and decency and integrity, they examined for themselves what was being taught. What does nobility look like? What would it look like for you to be a noble woman? What would it look like for you to be a noble man? I grew up and I love kings and queens and knights and all that sort of thing. I've always kind of dreamed of being, you know, nobility and rising up to a great place. Well, this is kind of my chance, all right? This is my opportunity to make my way into that fantasy film and be one of the great nobles. And I discover that it's in a far different way than the way the world tends to make much of nobility. What we see is we see three things in the scriptures that, that gives them this title, more noble. If you look at it with me in the middle of verse 11, it says they received the word with all eagerness. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them, therefore, believed. Let's look at the first reality. They received the word with eagerness. This is a group of Jewish men and women, and they had been waiting for news about the Messiah. They had examined the scriptures already far before the Apostle Paul ever came to their town. And they sought the Lord. And when the news of the Lord came to them, they were ready to receive it because they were eager already. They were eager to be taught. They were eager to, be, to know the truth. I think of it this way. Many of you know Jesus. Many of you do. You know salvation, and you know the Lord. But the question is, are you eager to know him more fully? Do you want to know who he really is? How he's really saved? What is the great glory of his grace? Are you eager to know Jesus? When I was speaking about Jesus, the Christ, a moment ago, Were you thinking, I know that Jesus is the Christ, I just don't really know what that means. I know it's true, 
I know, I even know it means that he's anointed, but I really couldn't explain much more than that. I'm eager to learn more though. I want to know my God. I want to know the king and the high priest who has worked salvation for me. Are you eager to know the Lord? That's what it is to receive the word with eagerness. These men and women in Berea knew of the prophecies of the Messiah. They knew of the Christ. They knew the scriptures and they anticipated his coming. And so when news about him came, they were eager to receive the word. And it says that when they received the word, that they were eager to receive, they weren't like other people who are also eager to hear the word. The scriptures speak of people who have itching ears. And there are false prophets who will go out and they will scratch your itch because you're eager to hear it. That sounds nice. That kind of puts me at the center of the story. That makes salvation all about my glory, that I am so lovable that it was necessary that Jesus would die for me. Man, I love that. God loves me so much. Eager to hear stuff like that. There are people who will go out and they will scratch that itch. But that's not the Bereans. They had examined the scriptures and they were eager to hear not just what they were eager to hear. They were eager to hear the truth, even if it ran contrary to their expectation. And when they heard these things, they're like, we haven't heard that before, Paul. We will go to the scriptures and see if it's true. And they examined the scriptures. And they found that it was true. They examined the scriptures daily to see if it was true. Now, Paul had made a good argument. He'd refined it over the course of two missionary journeys now. He had the opportunity to refine his argument among synagogues, over dinner tables, and jail cells. He'd been brought before magistrates and made the argument countless other places. He was refining an argument. That doesn't mean that he was working with great eloquence and pithy illustrations. It just means that he knew what he was talking about and he was making his argument well. The Bereans, though aren't looking for Paul to tell a good story, even if he had a collection of proof texts. The Bereans would only be satisfied if the gospel of Paul is the gospel according to the scriptures. What are you itching for? What do you want to hear? Do you want to hear the gospel according to the scriptures? I'm saddened so very often when I hear of what passes for Christianity today. So much of what is out there isn't just a variation or a side argument or even a secondary matter that we ought not be divided over. So much of what is out there is no gospel at all. It's a false gospel. I was speaking with my community group, and earlier this week I was listening to the briefing with Albert Moeller, and in the briefing he goes through a a current analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview, he says every time. And in that he was making reference to an article in the New York Times written by Nicholas Kristof, who goes about interviewing a number of religious leaders, and in this interview he was interviewing Serene Jones, who is president of Union Theological Seminary. If you don't know that seminary, and I'm fine if you don't, to be real honest, it's known for its theological liberalism. And as he's interviewing her, he asks this question. He says, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? You know, like the one that you heard preached last week, according to the scriptures. He says, she responds to his question. 
When you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. That sounds really nice, doesn't it? Especially that last verse, right? The ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. And there are itching ears longing to hear that love endures, love remains, right? But did you hear that? There's no resurrection story in Mark. That's interesting. When I shared that with my community group, it took my wife literally 30 seconds or less to find Mark 16.6. Mark 16, 6, the women went to the tomb of Jesus and found it empty. And here's what it says. At the tomb, they found an angel who said, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. No resurrection in Mark. Examine the scripture for 30 seconds, let alone daily. And you can shred what a seminary president is teaching future pastors. Mark 6, 6, 16, 6 is in the scriptures. Have we examined the scriptures to test what we're hearing? Serene Jones made a fanciful claim, and she's hiding behind her presidential authority, but the claim is dead false. It's seriously dead, and it's seriously false. And it's the reason that the Bereans examined the scriptures. Now consider if you read the article in the New York Times, let's just let you're sitting there, you're at Starbucks and then you're enjoying a coffee and you're just flipping through the paper and you're reading that account in NPR and you might hear that phrase that the Mark doesn't have a resurrection account and you think, okay, yeah, but, but I still believe in the resurrection, I think. This is, goes to the doubts that we were talking about last week on Easter. But I still believe in the resurrection. I mean, don't the other three at least have a resurrection account? But right there, in that false and deadly statement of Serene Jones, she planted a seed of doubt. And if you don't search the scriptures, that doubt remains. Now, much more insidious things are being proffered in supposed Christian books and Christian music and Christian podcasts and magazines. And there is word Christian in front of all of those publishers and so on. And there is a noble task that remains for us. A noble task remains for you this morning. Are you examining the scriptures with us? When Tim invited us to to open the scriptures, did we go searching for the scriptures and say, I must follow along so I can know and I can examine with the church what is being taught to us even this morning. Now, there's, a, there's an opposite side of the argument here. Sometimes the Bereans have been used as an argument to reject the idea that we need to be taught anything at all that we ought to just reject all teachers and read the Bible. It's sort of a Jesus and me, the Bible and me argument. And to be honest, since moving into this county about seven and a half years ago and and just watching a lot of the culture that is out here, that's very prevalent in the county. Sort of a Jesus and me, Bible and me approach to Christianity. They use the Bereans 
to argue against the need for creeds or confessions or even godly teachers to lead us in the study of scriptures. Their motto is, they only need the Bible. And if they mean by this, they only need the Bible as a true and sufficient authority, their right to make the argument. I join in it. I heartily agree. We only need the authority of the scriptures. But notice that the Bereans did need something other than the Bible. You see that, right? They needed Paul to make reason with them from the scriptures. It was only when Paul came and explained to them how Jesus is the Christ of the scriptures, that they could examine the scriptures and see Jesus in the pages of the word itself. That's the role that creeds and confessions and teachers and preachers play. We hold out the words of the word. And you are encouraged to go there in the word with us and with one another and allow these faithful teachers to point us to the word that we might examine it more closely and know what the word itself teaches. It's our responsibility to reason from the scriptures, to summarize the teaching or the doctrine, a big scary word, right? Doctrine, what does it mean? With the teaching of the scriptures, And to do so in a way that you go prepared on your way with the word having been opened to you. So that you might examine the same word for yourselves. That's why I ask you to open your Bibles and follow along with me. That's why I preach with my Bible open. And for the longest time, I would do it to this day. I had a tiny little Bible so I could hold it the whole time. And I held it like this. It's constantly opening it. And then my eyes just turned 40 and it all fell apart. Now I need big print. It's got to stay right here. But it's open and it's all over my notes. That's why the sermons can kind of get long sometimes. I, I want to take the time to explain the passage and place it in its context. Pay attention to the details that are often passed over so we don't miss what actually took place there. I don't want to create a nice alliterated sermon outline with a catchy illustration that you remember on your commute tomorrow morning. To be honest, I have little interest in you remembering any of my stories or any of my illustrations. If they're helpful to you to remembering the truth of the scripture, so be it. Otherwise, forget them. Okay? I want to give you the text of the scriptures. I want to reason from it with you. So that when you wake up tomorrow, you can open up this passage, Acts 17, right? And you can open up in it, and you can have some texts that are written in the margin of your Bible, and you can see there in front of you tomorrow morning the same things that you're being taught today, because they're there. I want you to open up the Bible and see the sermon outline, not because you have your notes sitting there, but because the sermon outline is the text of the Scripture, You can do that tomorrow, right? You can see the sermon outline on the slides behind me. And you see that the noble Bereans received the word with eagerness. Well, where's that at? You don't have to write it down. It's it's in the verse 11. You can see that they examine the scriptures daily. And you already know the third point. It's sitting there for us in the scriptures. The third point is that they believed. So let's go there. Don't miss that last point. It's one thing to be eager to learn. It's one thing to make a lifelong practice of careful study. It's beautiful. It's excellent. It's commendable. It's noble. It's another thing to realize that the call of the gospel is not only to learn, but to believe. 
to be submitted to the truth of what has been discovered according to the scriptures. I'm glad that many of you appreciate and expect teaching from the scripture when we gather. I'm glad that you're eager to hear the gospel again. But I also hope that you're eager to believe, that you're eager to remember and be submitted not to my words, but what is confirmed in the scriptures. I hope that you not only want to be instructed with for the renewing of your mind, but for the shaking of your, shaping of your life, that you would not only be informed, but you would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing by his word for us. Do you believe? And so let us listen, let us examine, and let us believe together as a church submitted to one word. This isn't very often that the scriptures hold out a person or a group of people as an example for us. There just aren't very many people that you can read of in the scriptures and say, those people are more noble. There aren't very many heroes in the story. The only true biblical hero is Jesus from beginning to end. He alone is our rescue, our redeemer. He alone is our savior and our example. But the Bereans are held out in this passage in such a noble and positive light that it would be, it would, we would do well to pay attention to their practice and perhaps emulate what they have for us, that we would listen, that we would examine, and that we would believe. Now, some of you may be aware of a shooting that took place in a synagogue in San Diego just yesterday. A shooting took place there. A woman lost her life, and it appears that the violence was an overtly anti-Semitic act. More than appears that way, it's just so. Truly tragic, violent loss. Let us for a moment see in the scriptures a people who are called in Berea noble. It would be easy to read Thessalonians and see there in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. You know those jealous Jews. And this whole idea of self-righteousness rises up and, and an anti-Semitism is just waiting to call the Jews the jealous Jews, right? And then you read in Berea that they were noble Jews. Friends, there is just, according to the scriptures, absolutely and utterly no place for that judgmental, self-righteous anti-Semitism or an anti-really much of anything like that in the scriptures. Let us be clear. If we examine the scriptures, anti-Semitism just isn't there for us. Let us not take it up. Let us make sure that we speak against it when it appears. Let us be noble like our Jewish brothers and sisters in Berea. And the first thing that we would do well to do in imitation of these noble people, according to the scriptures, would be to study and test what is taught to us from many sources. It's good and right to study and test according to the scriptures. If a teacher wants to reference scriptures, go to that scripture. Seek to understand it yourself. Make note of that scripture and go to it later in the week. If you listen to the podcast later on in the week, we have the references that have been referenced in the passage. We have quotes that have been put on the screen so that you might examine the scriptures daily. 
with us. Seek to understand it yourself. Check the context. See that it's being used rightly. Let us sharpen one another. Will you please sharpen me as I seek to teach you according to the scriptures? Let's sharpen one another together in accordance with the scriptures. But at the same time, that's a bit of a reactive approach. It's it's to allow yourself to be taught and then react by checking up on the teaching, to examine the proof texts. But this approach can lead to a passivity of our faith. If if we're actually eager, like the noble Bereans, we would search out the word to know it proactively. That you wouldn't wait for a pastor or a teacher or a book to give you verses to look up. You would be reading the scriptures. And so the second implication is of such great importance. The second implication is to study and to memorize and to know the word so that when we are being taught, we can follow along in our minds. We can say, ah, I see where that fits in the scriptures. And I can see how when he goes to that passage in Galatians, it seems to make sense with what I know of the story that's being told in Galatians or what in the world? That's not at all what the argument that was being made in that passage. I've read that letter before. Doesn't make any sense at all. I've read Mark and I know the resurrection's in there. We know the story. We know it in our guts. And when an opposing narrative is presented, we already know that it doesn't sound the same note. It sounds discordant to the story of the scriptures. It isn't in the same key as the rest of the story. You see, the second implication is a call not only to check proof texts reactively, it's to know the whole of the story of scriptures proactively. So you can check proof texts on an afternoon, but it takes a lifetime devoted to the word to know the story. And so we remember how the outline of various aspects of the gospels takes place in Romans. And we remember the old story, Old Testament story about Melchizedek. And we remember that that's made reference to in Hebrews, and we say he's a high priest, and Jesus is a high priest in that order. That's, that's what it means, that he's the anointed one. He's the Christ, and we remember the story. What I'm getting to is this. To be proactive about your engagement with the Scriptures, it will take time and effort and intentionality. It'll take a church. It will take a culture of a church to be noble in that way. We have been gifted the words of our God. Are we eager to know the story? I want to offer a few helps as we go about this noble endeavor. The first is find someone to walk with you. Some of you are like, I'm not very good at that. I've kind of tried and it hasn't gone all that way. Find someone to walk with you. It's good to walk with someone who's more mature, who's further along in the journey. Join in the same Bible reading plan with a brother or sister in the church. Call one one another up. Text encouragements from the scriptures that you've read. Secondly, shape the practices of your household around a rhythm of knowing the scriptures. Don't let your day get shaped merely by the demands of the day. Shape your day early in the morning with an eagerness to know the word together as a household, no matter what your household looks like. If you know you're the head of the household and set out what looks like participating together in knowing the scriptures, set that out as the order of your 
day. For those of you with young children, young children of all ages, I highly recommend two books, Long Story Short and Old Story New by Marty Mikowski. Why? Because it pays attention to the story of the scriptures by paying attention, you know, to the scriptures themselves, right? I have a vision for the church. There there are many things that are difficult about the day in which we live. If you're paying attention, you can see it. It's a difficult day. We're facing new oppositions on every side. Will we be prepared and found noble? Well, we will be. If we're deeply shaped by the word, if it, if it looks like we have listened in eager anticipation. I believe Crosspoint can become by the grace of God according to the work of his word and the ongoing work and presence of his spirit in his people who have been redeemed by the grace of the Christ. I believe that we can become unshakable by vain philosophies if we're grounded in the word together. And I believe that we will be prepared to reason from those same scriptures in our communities so that they also might believe with us. Heavenly Father, this belief, this vision for a church is only possible by means of your grace, that your word would work, but it does. And you promise it will. We seek you, we find you. We just have to seek where you're actually found. You promise to be found in the words of your word. Work in your people today, we pray. Give us creativity. I pray that the young people in this room would not pass this over as something their parents are supposed to do for them. I pray that a young person right now would be convicted to know a story that they have been graced to even know exists. They would pursue you and they would memorize your word and they would be found to be a noble young man and a noble young woman in our midst. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for your word. Give us not only the the conviction to be eager to learn, but also the transformation that your spirit brings unto belief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.